why don't we go ahead and get into our message. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. The Apostle Paul, uh, one of my favorite biblical writers, he says this, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is pointless, and your faith is pointless too. A few verses later, verse 17, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Today, obviously, we're celebrating Easter Sunday, which is all centered and revolved around the resurrection of Jesus. And again, within our faith, it's a big deal, and we always look forward to it. But the truth of the matter is, I don't think we truly realize the magnitude and the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. I really don't. I think if we were to be honest, if we were to look at our lives and our perspectives, the way we think and the way we live, we would realize that there's a hole missing that needs to be filled with the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. And what Paul is saying here is, hey, if you don't believe this, and if you're not applying this to your life, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. You're missing something here that you need to grab hold of. And so my hope today is to maybe help begin bringing some things that you can hold on to as it relates to Easter Sunday that you can apply to your life, to your perspective that might forever change you. Now, if you were here last week, uh, maybe you were able to catch us online, you know that we finished up our series called Words Matter. And by the way, probably uh, my favorite series that we've ever done, uh, my favorite series I've ever had to prepare for. It was just awesome. If you haven't listened, you can go onto our website, YouTube, catch up on all of that. But we finished things up last week with the word gospel, which means the good news of the kingdom of God. And that was really the perfect setup for an Easter message, because this entire weekend that we've been reflecting upon and celebrating is ultimately the summation of the good news of Jesus. In fact, if we go back to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says this, starting in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So as the Apostle Paul himself begins to look at this idea of the good news of the kingdom of God, he's ultimately able to sum it up in this way, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised to life. This is what we see as the good news. Now we'll get into today why exactly that's good news for us, but there are two things in particular that this set of scriptures shows me and stands out to me, especially as it relates to Easter Sunday. The first thing, he says something interesting. He says that he was raised on the third day. Secondly, he says it was in accordance with the scriptures. Now you have to understand when Paul says <clears throat> scriptures, he's speaking of the Old Testament, okay? When Paul is alive and he's writing, the New Testament isn't yet a thing. That would come about hundreds of years later. So he is speaking specifically of the Hebrew scriptures. And so why is Paul calling out these two interesting pieces of information? What exactly is he pointing us to? And so let's start with the mention of the third day. You ever wonder to yourself, why did Jesus raise to life on the third day? Like I know for us these days, that's a common knowledge thing, right? The third day aspect is just kind of lumped into the whole story. We just kind of take it for granted. But in reality, it seems to be a bit 
arbitrary, doesn't it? Like certainly he could have raised on the first day. Certainly he could have raised on the second, on the fourth, on the 20th. He could have done whatever he wanted, right? So why the third day? In fact, why does Jesus specifically prophesy it will happen this way? Why do the gospel writers specifically call this out? What is going on and what is scripture trying to tell us? And this is actually what draws us to that second aspect in accordance with the scriptures, because apparently this third day narrative was pulling from something in the Hebrew scriptures that we need to be aware of. It's trying to bring our attention to something bigger. And so this is what I want to talk about today. The title of my message is this, the third day, the third day. What does this mean? And what are we to take from it? Before we get into this, if we could just bow our heads and close our eyes and pray together. Heavenly Father, we first and foremost just want to thank you for what you accomplished and what this weekend ultimately represents. Um, As much as we might try, we could really never wrap our hearts and our minds around the magnitude of it. But I pray that this morning you would begin to open it up in a new way, that you would begin to shine light in a new way on what this means for us and how we can live in it. I pray that you would focus us in, get rid of all of the distractions, and that ultimately, Holy Spirit, you would move, you would speak in the way in which you desire. We trust in you, we come before you humbly, and we thank you ahead of time for what you're going to do. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and everybody said, amen, amen. So um, on Thursday mornings, we uh, have recently been meeting with a men's group for coffee and talking about scripture. And for those of you guys that aren't there, losers, um, no, no, Um, no, I understand you got work, whatever, but, but we've been meeting, we've been having a good time. And we have recently been listening to the Bema Discipleship Podcast. This is something that I've mentioned before. Recommended listening for everybody. Write that down, go download it, listen to it. But this last week, um, the podcast we listened to was centered all around the differences between our modern Western view of Scripture and the original Eastern view that it was intended for. All right. We know that the Bible was written a long time ago. It was in a different time, a different culture. But the truth is, is we often struggle to put that into play when we read and we study for ourselves. And one of the high level pieces that we discussed is how different their growth mindset was compared to ours today. I mention this often, but the ancient Eastern people, they they spoke, they taught, they learned primarily through creative means. That is things like art and imagery and poetry and storytelling. Uh, We see this in the creation narrative. We see this in the book of Psalms and Proverbs in their prophetic language. We even see it in, in the parables that Jesus teaches through all of it steeped in creativity and, and in discovery. And in fact, one of the big tools they often used as part of this creative learning process was numbers. Okay, this was something that was important to them. Now for us, in our modern Western view, numbers are just quantitative things, right? When we think of numbers, we immediately start doing math, right? We're adding and we're subtracting and we're multiplying. It's immediately where our minds go. But for them and their mindset, numbers always represented something bigger, okay? Like they actually had meaning. They actually had implications that were attached to them. And one of the significant numbers we often see utilized in the biblical story is the number three. 
And in fact, we see this in some really interesting contexts that we may not expect. For instance, when Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding, John specifically calls out that it was on the third day. When Jesus, as a kid, gets lost from his parents, it says that they found him in the temple after three days. When the Holy Spirit fell for the first time in Acts chapter 2, it calls out that it was in the third hour of the day. When Saul of Tarsus, Apostle Paul, who we've already talked about, when he gets struck with blindness on the road to Damascus, it says he was blind for three days. This is just one of those numbers that continuously pops up throughout the biblical narrative that that seems to be trying to catch our attention. It's trying to to tell us something. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to walk through a few third day stories within the Old Testament. So that is before Jesus shows up. And and what we're going to see is what this might open up to us in our understanding of this number and how it really applies to Easter Sunday. Now, here's the thing. Typically, what I would do is I would take these stories and I would try to sum it up for you and kind of paint these pictures of of what it looked like so that you could kind of see it for yourselves. But actually reading through the text is going to be really important for us today because there's so much happening in the language that should catch our attention. There's so many things popping up that I want you to try to see for yourself, maybe take note of as you continue your study. So again, we're just going to read through these stories, try as we're reading through to really visualize what is going on for yourself. And so let's begin with the first story. We're going to go to the book of Exodus chapter 19 and just kind of a quick preface to ensure we understand what is going on here. Again, this is over a thousand years before Jesus shows up on the scene. All right. A thousand years before he's ever here. And at this point in the biblical narrative, God begins using a man named Moses to free his people from Egypt, okay? And as we read through this story, there are just unbelievable things happening. I mean, we see these miraculous plagues that God is using. Uh, We see him part the Red Sea as they walk safely through it. I mean, crazy, crazy things leading to the people finding themselves in this wilderness between Egypt and their ultimate promised land, okay? And as the people led by Moses are gathered in the wilderness, God decides to reiterate his covenant faithfulness to his people. Okay, and so this is where we pick up starting in verse one. In the third month, so already we see this number in play. After the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So we see this idea of covenant really, really heavy out of the gate. We pick up in verse seven. So Moses came, he called the elders of the people, and he set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and you may also, they may also believe in you forever. 
The Lord also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around saying, beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. He said to the people, be ready for the third day. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. So we got a lot of stuff going on here, right? Got a lot of activity, a lot of things that are happening that we need to try to make sense of. But the first thing that we have to call out here is that there are flashing red lights all over this story as it relates to Jesus, I mean, there are things popping up like crazy, correlation after correlation. Let me give you a few examples. We see that there's a cleansing that is necessary before the third day, a clear pointer to the cross of Jesus Christ. We see that there's a reference to an earthquake and lightning, which is exactly what we see in Matthew 28 as both Marys make their way to the tomb. We even see images of the Lord descending as a fire, which is a direct call to Acts 2 and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This is literally an Old Testament culmination of the new covenant fulfillment. That's what we're seeing in the story. In fact, you may have noticed that there's almost this constant push and pull between God and the people throughout this. For instance, we have Moses going up and down and up and down the mountain as this human mediator between God and the people. We see the people are preparing themselves and they're consecrating themselves, yet they still have to kind of keep their distance from God. We see that the elders are involved, but even they are restricted in what they can and, and cannot do. It's almost like there's this partialness to the story that you're waiting to see broken open, right? Like, like there's, there's something here that's not totally being brought to light. And this slightly cracked door is exactly what Jesus comes over a thousand years later and swings wide open. That's exactly what we see. What was once a human mediator now comes in the form of Jesus. What was once full of rules and restrictions now comes in the form of freedom. What was once a people who were fearful and trembling now comes as a people who can enter the throne of grace with confidence. There's a new power, there's a new authority, and most importantly, there's a new intimacy that is available. This is, I think, the real message of what we need to take from this. Did you notice in the Exodus story, it specifically talks about them setting boundaries around them, right? Like, don't get too close. You have to keep your distance. And yet, what do we see in the Jesus story? 
the exact opposite. People gathered around him constantly, talking to him face to face, reclining with him at the table. I mean, over and over again, we see this revelation. In fact, in the Exodus account, it specifically says, no hand shall touch him. No hand shall touch him. And yet, what do we see after the resurrection of Jesus as he talks to Thomas? He says, go ahead, touch my hands, touch my side, prove for yourself that I have truly risen from the grave. There's this new intimacy, there's new closeness here that Christ has made available. In fact, watch what we read in Hebrews chapter 12. This is, of course, after Christ now. It says, you have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. For they had heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. Verse 23, no, you have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and the people. In other words, a new work has begun in and through Jesus. And what was once riddled with fear and with boundaries and with distance is now summed up in the words of Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just come here. Get a little bit closer. This is what I've come to do. This is what his death and his resurrection has opened up. This is the first story. Let's move to the second one. We go back to the Old Testament before Jesus, picking up in Genesis chapter 22. A beautiful story, one that I'm sure many of you know well. We have a man named Abraham with his son Isaac. And as we read about Abraham leading up to this story, we know that he is a great man of God, a great man of faith, and the one where the covenant was initiated. So we already see this idea of covenant and play. But Abraham is promised a son. He desires a son. He wants a son. And it isn't until he's 100 years old until he gets this promised son. 100 years old. Can you imagine being 100 dealing with a toddler running around? Like, I'm in my 30s and it tires me out. I can't even imagine. But he finally gets his son. And we see an interesting twist in the story in chapter 22. Read along with me. It says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, And he said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, interesting language, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. Okay, I can't wait. I can't wait any longer. So already we have a father offering up his son as a burnt offering, as a sacrifice on a hill. Any correlations yet? Let's continue on. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. He said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now we have a mention of a lamb. 
Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So now we have this son being sacrificed on wood, which he carried up the hill himself. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you revere God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide as it is said to this day in the Mount of the Lord, it will be provided. I'm gonna say that last one real quick. In the Mount of the Lord, it will be provided. So once again, as I've already alluded to, just flashing lights all over the place as it relates to Christ. We yet again have this theme of covenant. We yet again see these arrows that are pointing straight to Jesus. But let's get right into the real message of what this account is showing us. And that is a message of atonement. Atonement. And when I say that, what, what, what does that mean? Atonement means two things. Number one, atonement is a paying of debt or sacrifice on somebody else's behalf, okay? So in other words, if you owe someone something, money, possessions, in this case, a life, then you have to atone for that, right? There's a payment, there's a sacrifice that is due. And so we clearly see in this story, this is what the ram represents, the atonement on Isaac's behalf. And of course, we clearly see that this is what Jesus represents in the new covenant, right? In fact, watch what we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So what the life of Jesus shows us is there's a debt to be paid. There's a payment that is due for our wrongdoing and through his atoning sacrifice, he willingly pays it in full. What we owed, as Abraham says, God provided. But here's the second thing that atonement means. And this is the part we skip right over. In fact, if I'm being honest with you, this is one of the biggest issues we have with our Christian perspective today. And that is atonement also represents freedom. Atonement also represents life. In fact, isn't that exactly what we read in verse nine? It says, he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is also what atonement means. And again, it's something we so easily overlook in the story. So easily we do this in the songs that we sing, in the way that we talk, even in many of the ways that we teach this. Man, I'm so happy my sins are paid for. I know how messy I am, how bad I am, how evil I am. Thank God for forgiveness. And yes, thank God for forgiveness. But don't you also understand what that means? That means you are free. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. That means that you have new life, that the old has passed away. See, the truth is, is so many of us are stuck at the cross. So many of us are, are stuck there over and over again, trying to make atonement, trying to ensure that those sins are paid in full. We're stuck there. 
And yet Paul says this in Romans 6, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. It's done. It's done. You don't have to look back. You don't have to worry about it. It's paid in full. In fact, watch what he says in the very next verse. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're alive. This is what the resurrection is all about. Jesus didn't just die to pay the debt. He rose again to show that new life is available, that new life is given to us. In other words, we should be resurrection people every day of our lives. A people who live like he has truly freed us. A people who act like we truly have new life in him. Like get beyond the cross and into the resurrected life that he has for you. This is what so many of us need to hear and understand. It's something we need to cling to. And frankly, it's something that we see from the very beginning. We've gone through Abraham. We've gone through Isaac and to Moses and the people of Israel. One of the most amazing aspects of the third day principle is that it was in play from the very beginning. Let's go to Genesis chapter one, starting in verse 11. It says this, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Now, what's the significance here? Maybe we missed something here. What, what exactly is this showing us? Well, here's the significance, and, and get this, because this is so amazing. Because of this creation narrative, seen from the very beginning of the biblical narrative. Listen, for the Hebrew people, the third day always was known as the day God made new life spring up from the ground. From the very beginning of time, we see this. In fact, this is really cool. Most Hebrew scholars will tell you that there's actually two third day principles in the creation story. That is the third day and the sixth day. In many ways, they're mere images of one another. And of course, what did God create on the sixth day? Mankind, right? We see this culmination of his creation. But what do we learn later mankind was created from? From the dust of the ground. Yet again, new life sprouting up from the ground. The resurrection of Jesus was set in play from the very beginning of the story. New life is available if you will give yourself to it. We see it from beginning to end. But here's what I think the moral of this particular correlation is. And again, it's one that we so easily overlook. There's an interesting inclusion within both the third and the sixth days that we need to pay attention to. Let me read this and see if you catch this. The third day, this is verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and trees bearing fruit. The sixth day, verse 28. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Here's the point. New life isn't brought about for the sake of new life. New life is brought about because there's a purpose at hand and an invitation into seeing that purpose fulfilled. You are to be fruitful. You are to take action. And isn't that in play through every single thing with Jesus? Think about all the different times he talks about bearing fruit. Think about the words he leaves us with that we now call the great commission. 
In fact, maybe you've never realized this, but watch the very first thing Jesus says to his disciples after his resurrection. Now, he could have said anything, right? The man just raised from the dead. He could have told them anything. Watch what he says in John 20. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Listen closely. Listen. The resurrection of Christ is not simply to be celebrated because it's a miracle. The resurrection of Christ is not simply to be marveled at because it's the beginning of God's new creation. The resurrection of Christ should always stand as a call to action that God is up to something in and through us. The new work that he has begun, he wants to fulfill through us, meaning he wants us to bear fruit that leads to healing, that leads to restoration, that leads to new life. This is what the resurrection is trying to show us from beginning to end. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but if we simply look at the resurrection and cling to it as some sort of hope for after we die, we're missing the point. We're missing the point of the entire scriptural narrative. It's about new life now. It's about his kingdom now. It's about restoration now. And so let it awaken us to purpose. Let it awaken us to mission. Let it awaken us to action that there's work to be done. This is what the resurrection must show us. And it began on the third day. We need to be awakened to this. There's a new covenant There's new life, but there's also new purpose ahead of us, and we must be given to it as his people. Please stand with me. I I wish we had more time today to go into all the different correlations between this third day idea and the work of Jesus. Go study it sometime. It's, it's amazing how prevalent this is. From the, the garden language and how we see that pop up during this story um, to the details of the garden and how Jesus teaches about it, we see it over and over again. But let me show you just a few of the things we see explicitly with this number three. All of this revolving around Holy Week, around this weekend that we're celebrating. Check this out. How many times did Jesus pray in the garden before they came and arrested him? Three times. How many times did Peter deny him before the rooster crowed? Three times. How many times did Pilate push back against the crowd before handing Jesus over to be crucified? Three times. How many people hung on crosses that fateful day? Three. How many times did Jesus say, peace be with you after his resurrection? Three. And what hour of the day was Jesus hung on the cross? The third hour. Over and over again, we see this all as a huge arrow that is pointing to new life and new purpose. Don't you see it? Don't you see that it's available? Come on, just open your eyes and see that new life and new purpose is ahead of you. And so this is what I pray for each and every one of us today, that we wouldn't just go through another Easter, sing some songs, think about the fact that he miraculously rose from the grave, but that we would take heart into what that means for our lives, that it would awaken us, that it would drive us into action, into purpose, into new life here on earth.